1861, in his first sermon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, Charles Spurgeon said these words, I would propose that the subject of the ministry in this house, as long as this platform shall stand and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. But if I am asked, what is my creed? I reply, it is Jesus Christ. That's the Prince of Preachers right there. Like, that's good stuff. Why say that? Why call attention to that fact? I'm sure we could list a bunch of reasons, but isn't one that there's no other gospel than Jesus Christ? Is it one that there is no other foundation for the church than Jesus Christ? And isn't one that while our distinctions are important, they should never, never usurp the truest thing about us, that we are Christ's, that Jesus is our creed. So we're just getting started with a new series here on 1 Corinthians. At the beginning of this letter, in chapters 1 to 4, Paul confronts the Corinthian church over their sinful, prideful divisions. He introduces this in chapter 1 in verses 10 to 13. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The Corinthian church was missing what Charles Spurgeon gets right. They were embracing the wisdom of the world, which values eloquent, persuasive speech, nobility, and strength. They were pridefully aligning themselves with certain leaders boasting in them and giving way to quarreling, jealousy, and strife. And fundamentally, at the heart of it, they were failing to grasp and live in light of the gospel of Christ crucified. How could the Corinthians embrace Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross, and arrogantly boast in their leaders and quarrel with each other? So that's why we're calling the series on 1 Corinthians cruciform living, cruciform meaning in the shape of the cross. The Corinthian church needed to live their lives with the cross of Christ, with the gospel at the center. And they needed to be shaped by the cross, not by the world around them and its wisdom. And so do we. It would be foolish for us to study this letter and not see ourselves in it. True, we're living in 21st century uh, Wilmington, uh, they were in first century Corinth, um, but we too face temptations uh, to give way to pride, division, jealousy, strife. We could go on. The time and the place might be different, but the sins at the heart of it fundamentally are the same. We need Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit's help to have our lives shaped by the cross, not the world around us. And so this morning... We're working through 1 Corinthians 3, 
And if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 953. In this chapter, Paul continues to confront the Corinthians over their divisions, and he points out three problems with their actions. One, they're living out of step with who they are in Christ. They are walking contradictions. Two, they are misunderstanding some fundamental truths about the church, and they need to be corrected and warned. And three, they're behaving pridefully and thinking too small, and they need gospel clarity. So, that said, let's dive into our first point, walking contradictions. Look with me at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So Paul's referring here to past and present interactions with the Corinthian church, and what he has to say is not good. As far as past interactions go, he says that he could not address the Corinthians as spiritual people, as those who have the Holy Spirit. Instead, he had to address them as people of the flesh. The word flesh here referring to simple human physical beings. And he had to refer to them as infants in Christ. Now, Paul is not saying here that the Corinthians aren't Christians. After all, he refers to them in verse 1 of chapter 3 as brothers. And while they are infants, they're infants in Christ. But Paul is pointing out a serious problem. He had to feed the Corinthians with milk, not solid food, because they weren't ready for it. I remember what a relief it was when my son James started eating solid food. Uh, when he was an infant, he had some serious reflux issues, and it was often a battle to get him to drink his milk. And sometimes at the end of the day, Whitney and I, and Beth McGarvey actually helped us with this a couple of times. Thanks, Beth. Um, we had to feed him with a syringe just to get him to take in the amount of milk that he needed for the day because he had that hard of a time eating it. And so that was definitely trying for Whitney and me, but it also signaled that something wasn't right with him, with James. But thankfully, that reflux problem seemed to completely disappear when he transitioned from milk to solid food, which is something that all healthy babies eventually do. The Corinthians were not progressing. They were immature in their faith. They were not ready for deeper application and understanding of the gospel. And not only were they not ready for it in the past, Paul switches to the present tense and says they still aren't ready for it. They aren't growing. And that is a problem. They are, as Paul says in verse 3, still of the flesh. The word for flesh here having more moral connotations. And so how does Paul know they're still of the flesh? There is jealousy and strife among them. And they are divided. They're boasting in men. They're being merely human. So in other words, 
while they are Christians, while they do have the Holy Spirit, Paul addresses them uh, as brothers, they aren't acting like it. They are walking contradictions. Spiritual people living like people of the flesh, they aren't living in step with the gospel of Christ crucified. The gospel, the good news that Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God, died a sacrificial death on behalf of sinners, and rose from the dead, leaves absolutely no room for jealousy. Because of our sin, we don't deserve a single good thing. But because of Jesus, because of what He has done for us, we have everything we could ever dream of. We've been forgiven of our sins. We've been adopted into the family of God. In Christ, God is our Father, Jesus is our brother, and the Spirit is our ever-present helper. All is ours in Christ. How could we be jealous of someone else or what someone else has? The gospel of Christ breaks down division. Because of our sin, we were separated from God and one another. But through faith in Jesus, we have been united to Christ and are one in Him. The dividing wall that once existed has been torn down. So how could we allow disunity to creep into our midst? And the gospel of Christ kills our pride. We have a Savior who humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and He did this to save us. How then can we be prideful? Where is there room for boasting in anything other than what Jesus has done. The Corinthian church was living out of step with the gospel, and Paul confronts them over it. They simply cannot continue on this path, and neither can we. You can't claim Jesus and live like you're still the flesh. That would be like seeing a butterfly behaving like it's still a caterpillar. That's silly to think about, I know, but how weird would that be? It used to be a caterpillar. Now it's been transformed. It's not going to crawl around and try to build and get in a cocoon. It's going to fly. It's a butterfly. If you've been transformed through faith in Jesus, if Christ is yours and if you are His, your life should reflect Him. And if your life isn't reflecting Him, there's a problem. So what do we do? Well, Repent of your sin and believe the gospel. This is the path of our lives, is it not? Daily as Christians, we need to be living in these patterns, this continual pattern of repentance and faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith, always running to and resting in Jesus. So run to Jesus. Rest in Him and seek to grow more and more mature in Him. And if you aren't a Christian, well, the path is the same. Forsake your sin and trust in Jesus to save you. You can't do anything to make yourself right with God, so lay aside your best efforts and trust in Jesus to forgive you and give you salvation and eternal life. He's ready and willing to receive you, so run to Him. But Paul doesn't stop here. He presses in on the division in the Corinthian church and exposes some of their incorrect beliefs about the church. So he gives them what we might call, and this is our second point, ecclesiological correctives, correctives regarding the church. 
So in these verses, verses 5 to 17, Paul does at least three things. One, he explains why the Corinthians shouldn't boast in their leaders. Two, he exhorts the leaders in the church to take care how they build on the foundation of Jesus. And three, he issues a warning to anyone who would attempt to destroy the church uh, where God's Spirit dwells. And he gets these point across, he gets these points across with two analogies and a final warning. So let's look at the first analogy. This is in verses five to nine. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So here, Paul uses an agricultural analogy to make the point that the Corinthians should not boast in their leaders. So remember that this is a problem in Corinth. Paul introduced this in chapter 1, and he'll continue to address it right through chapter 4. And here, he stresses that he and Apollos, leaders who ministered in Corinth, are servants through whom the Corinthians believed the gospel. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but neither one of them caused the growth to occur. Yes, they are God's workers, and they will receive a reward based on their labor, but God gave that growth, not them. And it's therefore... God who deserves the praise, not them. Paul and Apollos' work was undoubtedly important, um, but uh, because it was through them that the Corinthians came to faith, but it would be foolish to heap upon them praise for something that God did. This would be like eating a really good meal at a restaurant and praising the waiter who delivered it to you instead of the cook who made it. It would be like reading a really great novel, uh, and instead of praising the author, praising the distributor who gave it to you, or the publisher who published it. Like, that's crazy. But this is what the Corinthians are doing, except it's worse. God deserves the glory, yet they're busy praising men, and they're dividing and quarreling over which leader they're following. Are we guilty of any of this? So we give undue credit and praise to Christian leaders when we should be praising God? Here are a couple of questions that might help us find out. Do we treat certain pastors with such regard that we afford them like an almost celebrity-like status or elevate them to a place where in our minds they can do no wrong? Or are we willing to try to one-up each other or look down on each other based on which preachers we listen to, or which blogs we read, or which Facebook posts we like. Now, neither of those questions are to say that we should be overly critical of Christian leaders. We shouldn't. Neither of them are to say that it doesn't matter which preachers we listen to. It does. Neither of them are to say that we shouldn't thank God for our leaders and express that thanks to them. And neither are even to say that we can't seek to model and imitate godly Christian leaders. 
Paul even says in chapter 4, 1 Corinthians and verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. But those questions are to say that we shouldn't boast in Christian leaders and divide over them. We shouldn't give them the praise that God deserves. And if that's where we're at, let's put our leaders and our hearts in proper perspective and take care not to elevate them to an unhealthy position. One other thing in these verses to notice is that Paul tells the Corinthians that they are God's field, God's building. They aren't Apollos's, they aren't Paul's. They are God's. That has implications, I think, for all of us here. For those of us who are leaders, especially the elders here, we cannot forget that this is God's church. You, Bethel, we are Christ's flock. You're not Chris's. You're not mine. You're not Todd's, Bill's, Dwight's, Greg's, or Al's. And that means that we need to be careful to lead like Jesus, under His authority, with humble, servant-like hearts. And for those of us who aren't leaders, this is not your church either. Now, I'm thankful to say that I'm not aware of any this is my church kind of mentality here, um, but it is all too easy to let that stuff creep in. Like We desperately need to guard against that because that's the kind of stuff that will eat away at a Christian community. I recently heard a pastor tell a story where this mentality was on display in an ugly way. He was hired by a local church who was struggling and in need of greater doctrinal fidelity. And early in his ministry at this church, he met with a staff member to discuss some changes that needed to take place in an area of ministry. And the staff member responded to him, and he seems like he came in with the right heart. The staff member responded to him and said something like, I've been here for X number of years. This is my church. To which he responded, No, this is Jesus' church, and he wants it back. Like, that's, I mean, that's bold. That is right on, though. Let's be vigilant here. Let's consciously remind ourselves that Bethel is God's church. So if we're tempted to, say, treat our giving even, like we're somehow buying shares in Bethel in order to be able to, in the future, throw our weight around, let's be quick to say, no, Christ church. If there's a change that we don't love, like to our building or to a ministry or something here that does not have to do with biblical fidelity, let's be quick to say, although I might have questions and concerns, this is Christ's church. We are Jesus' church. Like we're God's field. And we're also God's building. And that brings us to Paul's second analogy. So this is verses uh, 9, the last half of verse 9, through verses 15. So we'll start at verse 9 again. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, 
for the day, it's the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but is only through fire. So here, Paul moves from an an agricultural analogy to an architectural one. And while there's some overlap here with verses 5 to 9, Paul's focus is a little bit different. In verses 5 to 9, he addresses the church and explains why they shouldn't boast in their leaders. But here, in, in, in this portion of the text, he's issuing an exhortation to the leaders themselves, to the current leaders in Corinth. And he's telling them to take care how they build on the foundation he laid. So in this analogy, the Corinthian church is God's building. And the foundation for it, which Paul laid like a skilled master builder, is Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Christ crucified. No other foundation, Paul says, can be laid except this. And because that is true, because Jesus is the foundation for the church, the current builders in Corinth need to take care that their work, that the materials they build with reflect Jesus. Does that make sense? If the foundation is Jesus, what gets built on the foundation better reflect Jesus. And why is this the case? It's because the day of judgment is coming when the materials a builder uses will be revealed and tested by fire. If a builder has built on a foundation with materials that will survive the judgment, and here I think that's the gold, silver, and precious stones. Those are items that were used in the Old Testament to build Solomon's temple. That builder, the one who used those materials, will receive a reward. But if a builder has built on the foundation with materials that will be burned up, and I think that refers to the combustible materials here, wood, hay, straw, that builder will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but is only through fire. So what's going on here? What is Paul getting at? Well, again, it's important to remind ourselves what's going on in Corinth. So look with me, if you have your Bibles open, at the beginning of chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians. So here, Paul reminds the Corinthians that when he came to them, he did not proclaim the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. No, he decided to know nothing among them except Christ crucified. It's the foundation of the church. He, and this is verse 4 of chapter 2, did not speak to them in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And why did he choose to interact with them in this way? So that their faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The current builders at Corinth don't seem to be following this model, or at least they are struggling with it. Paul did not speak to the church with lofty speech, wisdom, or plausible words of wisdom. But that seems to be exactly the sort of thing that they are celebrating, the wisdom of the world. And the danger, it seems, is that if Paul chose to speak to them in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that their faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but the wisdom of God, or the power of God, 
it stands to reason that if the current leaders are using or valuing plausible words of wisdom, they run the risk of producing false converts whose faith does not rest in the power of God, but in the wisdom of men. So does that make sense? Paul did not use plausible words of wisdom. He spoke in the demonstration and power of the Spirit. Why? So that their faith would rest in God. So if the current leaders are using wisdom, if they are uh, deviating from the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it stands to reason they're running the risk of producing false converts whose faith rests in men, in the wisdom of men. That is an incredibly grave error. Do you see why this exhortation here is so necessary then? If the current leaders in Corinth are tempted to build with materials that aren't in step with the foundation Paul laid, with the foundation of Christ crucified, not only will the day of judgment come when their work is burned up and they'll suffer loss, but they may be leading folks to the judgment who don't know Jesus. As Christians, the leaders themselves will be saved, but any of their followers who are, who are trusting in anything other, in Christ, other than Jesus won't be. For those of us who lead and teach here at Bethel, we have to take this exhortation seriously. God will hold us accountable for our work. So, let's labor faithfully. Let's not forget that there's a gracious promise here too. That those who build with the good materials will receive a reward. So to put it negatively, let's be sure that we don't build with materials out of step with the gospel. That we don't resort to lofty wisdom or to lofty words or the wisdom of the world in order to gain a following or achieve what appears to be good results. To put it positively, Let's do be sure that we're building on the gospel of Christ crucified and that the gospel permeates all of our teaching, all of our leadership. So please be in prayer for our teachers and leaders here. Let's be diligent to pray for one another in this area. Pray for our kids volunteers. Pray for our student ministry volunteers. Pray for all of our adult ministry volunteers, pray for our deacons, pray for our deaconesses, pray for our elders. Ask God to keep us faithful to the gospel we've received. There is no other foundation that can be laid but Jesus Christ, and we need to take care to build on it well. And we want to. That's our desire here. All right, so Paul uses an agricultural analogy to make the point that the Corinthians shouldn't boast in their leaders. He uses an architectural analogy to exhort the current leaders in Corinth to minister in ways consistent with the gospel of Christ crucified. And now let's move down to verses 16 and 17 where he emphasizes that the Corinthian church is God's temple. And he gives a final word of warning that applies not just to the leaders, but to anyone who may have ill intentions. So he says, starting in verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. 
This is a serious warning. The Corinthian church is God's holy temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in them. And because that is true, if anyone destroys them, God's holy temple, God will destroy that person. God will destroy anyone who destroys his church. The Corinthians needed to hear that, and we need to hear that. So listen to D.A. Carson explain uh, just how this might happen. He says, quote, The ways of destroying the church are many and colorful. Raw factionalism will do it. Rank heresy will do it. Taking your eyes off the cross and letting other more peripheral matters dominate the agenda will do it. Building the church with superficial conversions and wonderful programs that rarely bring people into a deepening knowledge of the living God will do it. Entertaining people to death but never fostering the beauty of holiness or the centrality of self-crucifying love will build an assembly of religious people, but it will destroy the church of the living God. Gossip, prayerlessness, bitterness, sustained biblical illiteracy, self-promotion, materialism, all of these things and many more can destroy a church. End quote. Did anything there strike you? Anything convicting in that list? If so, don't freak out and despair. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. See the exposure of your sin as God's grace to you and repent. Put that sin away, whatever it is, and put on Christ. And let's labor well to build up this congregation on the foundation of Christ. All right, so big picture here. Paul has made clear that the Corinthians are walking contradictions. In their jealousy, strife, and factionalism, they're living out of step with the gospel. He's given them some ecclesiological correctives, explaining why the church shouldn't boast in their leaders, why the current leaders should take care how they minister, and why anyone who would destroy the church should take pause. And now, in these last few verses, Paul concludes with some final words of much-needed gospel clarity. So look with me here at verses 18 to 23. Let no one, verse 18, deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Amen. That is a good word. I read in a commentary uh, that the end of chapter three almost reads like a doxology. Paul's just breaking out into praise of sorts here. But in these verses, he is reiterating and he's drilling down on his rebuke of the world's wisdom. So he's explained in chapters 1 and 2 that the world sees wisdom in lofty speech, persuasive oratory, nobility, and strength. But since those things are folly with God, since God catches the wise in their craftiness, that's Job 5.13, 
since the Lord knows the thoughts uh, that since the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile, that's Psalm ninety four eleven. The person who thinks he is wise in this age should become a fool to become truly wise. And how do you become a fool in this sense? You embrace the wisdom of God displayed in the gospel of Christ crucified. What looks like weakness, a crucified Messiah, is really strength and power. For Jesus did not stay in the tomb. In power, God raised him from the dead. And in power, through the folly of the proclamation of the gospel, God raises from spiritual death every single person who puts his or her trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, Paul concludes in verse 21, let no one boast in men. It's prideful, that's foolish, but that's also thinking too small. In Christ, Paul tells the Corinthians, all things are yours. And that not only includes the leaders that the Corinthians are dividing over, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, but that is everything. The world, life, death, the present, the future, all are theirs. And they are Christ's, and Christ is God's. They are God's. So why in the world would you boast in men? It makes no sense to do that if you already have everything. That's not only prideful to do, but it misses out on the glory and the far-reaching scope and security of the gospel. You don't need to boast in anybody. You have God as your Father. And so if you're trusting in Jesus today, everything is yours. You are God's child. So reject the world's wisdom. And if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Boast in what Jesus has done for you and know that through Christ, there's nothing to fear. Everything is yours. And that includes the world. That includes life. That even includes death. That certainly includes the present. And that even includes the future. Everything is yours through faith in Christ. That kills boasting that kills insecurity, pride, fear, that kills division. So we need the Holy Spirit's help to be shaped by the cross and live in step with the gospel of Christ crucified. We need to view our leaders rightly and give God the praise He's due. We need to take care to build God's church on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and we need to walk humbly in line with the gospel realizing and rejoicing that all is ours in Jesus. I recently read a blog post that was sent to me uh, a few days ago. It's called Black Reformed but Foremost Christian. It's written by a guy named Anthony Carter. It's not only challenging, but it's encouraging. And He provides for us a great model, I think, for what it looks like to embody the heart of 1 Corinthians 3. So listen to what he has to say on the subject of being Christian. This means that we are first and last children of God. It means when you see one of us, you see a black man. But when you hear one of us, you hear a Christian man. It means that Christ is our Lord. 
It means that we are daily seeking to understand our African-American experience in light of the Lordship of Christ. It means that we are nothing apart from the grace of God and that God has created us who we are to live during the times in which we live that we might show forth his mercies while he is daily conforming us to the image of his dear son. It means that we must understand that Martin Luther King Jr. gave his life that we might vote, but Christ gave his life that we might live. Frederick Douglass gave his life that we might be free from slavery, but Christ gave his life that we might be free from slavery to sin and death. We are black, there is no mistaking that. We are reformed, and make no mistake about that. But these two distinctions have relevance only insofar as they are understood in light of the fact that we are Christian. C.H. Spurgeon said, I'm never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. But if I am asked what my creed is, I reply, it is Jesus Christ. We are proud to be Americans. We are equally proud to be African-American. We even more thank God that our theology is the biblically grounded, historically consistent theology of the Reformation. But if you ask us our faith, if you ask us our creed, if you want the sum of our lives, it is Jesus Christ, it is Jesus Christ. Amen. Man. We need to learn from Anthony Carter. Like This is a guy who gets it. He doesn't throw away distinctions like being American or African-American or Reformed, but he sees them in light of the most important thing about himself, that Jesus Christ is his creed, the sum of his life. So may we humbly but boldly say along with him and along with Charles Spurgeon and along with the Apostle Paul, my creed is Jesus Christ, my creed is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for Jesus. Christ is our creed. God, I pray that you would help us to uh, live faithfully in light of this text. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to live faithfully in light of the gospel, that we as a church family here would be sweet, beautiful reflections of Jesus that we would not be known for our jealousy or our strife or our division or our praise of worldly wisdom, but that we would be known for our love for Christ and one another. So God, please do among us that which only you can do. Be changing our hearts. Be conforming us into Jesus' image. Keep us faithful. And Lord, help us to be a beacon of light and this community that says Jesus Christ is everything. In his name I pray, amen.